you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 7. Luke and chapter 7, as we continue our study through uh, this incredible gospel. We are going to camp out in verses 36 through 50 this morning, okay? So Luke 7 and verses 36 uh, through 50. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well if you need to. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 7, starting verse 36. God's Word says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the, moment, the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table... With him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. As you know, tomorrow is Memorial Day, the holiday in which we are to bring to remembrance and honor in some way those who have died in service to our country. What you may not know is that Memorial Day started shortly after the Civil War and was originally called Decoration Day because it was on this day that people would go out and decorate the graves of the war dead. In fact, on the first Decoration Day, General James Garfield made a speech at Arlington National Cemetery and 5,000 participants decorated the graves of 20,000 Civil War soldiers buried there. Well, over time, with World War I and then World War II, it became more and more important that Americans have a day marked out where they are called to remember those who have died in American wars, as well as considering the reason why they died. People, of course, celebrate Memorial Day in all kinds of different ways. And one way I haven't seen a lot of people do around here, but maybe you have, or maybe you've done it yourself, is wearing red poppies. Have you seen this before? Um, well, how did that start? 
And why? Well, during World War I, a Canadian medic named J John McRae served in Europe, and he wrote a poem called In Flanders Field, and he mentioned red poppies that would grow in the fields where he saw many of his comrades die. And in this poem, McRae writes from the perspective of those who died, okay? From those who died. And uh, they are telling those who are alive of their responsibility in light of the sacrifice that the soldiers made. And so McRae, as you can imagine, as a combat medic, had seen the brutality of war, and he saw soldiers die in his arms, and this had a profound effect on him. And he wrote this poem exhorting the living to not forget those who died and for what they died. In the poem, which I'm going to read to you in a moment, McRae worries that once the guns stop firing, that those who were left would get distracted by the sounds of the lark and the busyness of life and forget what their freedom cost. So the call of the poem is from those buried below the fields to those above the field to not forget them or their sacrifice. Let me read you this poem. It goes like this. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place, and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' field. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' field. So you see, McRae believed that on a day like tomorrow, a day created to commemorate the war dead, that those who are living must do something. You see? They must do something with the sacrifice that was made on their behalf. In other words, it would be a tragedy if a sacrifice was made and it did nothing to alter how one lived. Something so great as someone dying for your benefit should motivate and inform life. So McCray pictures the dead saying, don't forget us. Don't get distracted by the things above the ground that you forget what is underneath. Do you see? Now, in the story we consider this morning, we see something similar at play, but to an even e greater eternal perspective. You see, in this story, Jesus shows us that he believes if one realizes the depths of their debt to God, and then sees and receives the great offer of forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice, they will live a life of gratitude and love that is fleshed out in concrete actions towards him and others. In vivid detail, Luke invites us into this scene to experience its sights and smells and sounds so that we can be ruined by the love and kindness of Jesus, to never move past the astonishment at his forgiving touch, and to treat others the way he treats people. So in our time together, instead of having major points, let's just walk through this scene um, and see what God has for us, and then Towards the end, I'll give you two application points, okay? But let's just walk through this together, okay? So the scene opens with Luke telling us that the Pharisee, whose name is what? We find out later. Simon. He invites Jesus to eat with him in Simon's home. 
Luke, as we've noted before, he loves to tell of scenes that take place around meals, okay, because he's a Baptist, all right? And what's interesting is that in the first banquet that Luke told us about, in chapter 5, you'll remember, it was a sinner, right, who was the host, and the Pharisees were the intruders. And now what do we see? It's completely flipped, right? The Pharisee is the host, and the sinner is the intruder. But isn't it curious, I thought this was curious when I started to read this story, that a Pharisee would even invite Jesus into his house to a meal, considering that all of our interactions with Pharisees thus far in Luke's gospel have been intensely negative. It seems, however, that this Pharisee has invited Jesus over because he's still trying to figure Jesus out. Perhaps if verse 39 is an indication, he still holds out the possibility that maybe Jesus is a prophet. Maybe he could be a prophet. And so we need not think that this, this instance of this Pharisee has only nefarious motives going in, okay? We, we get the impression from this text that the Pharisee is curious, but he's skeptical, right? Curious, but skeptical. In any case, Jesus accepts the invitation, which shows us something else about Jesus, right? That he truly is available to all types of people, isn't he? and all ty- of all types of backgrounds. So Jesus goes to the Pharisee's home, takes his sandals off as would be customary, takes his place reclining at the table, that's how they would sit, with Simon and his friends, perhaps fellow religious leaders. Suddenly, an uninvited guest comes in and crashes the party and makes Simon very uncomfortable. Okay? We're told a woman of the city who was a sinner heard that Jesus was going to be there and went to see him, okay? Who is this woman? We don't know. We just know that she was of that city, right? And that she was notorious for her sin. What is her sin? What's it say? It doesn't, right? We're not told. You can imagine many people have speculated of the nature of this sin, but we need not do the same. The fact is, Luke doesn't tell us. Conjecture is unnecessary. All Luke wants us to know is this is a woman who is well known for her sin, whatever that might be. And she has had some previous encounter with Jesus. She has perhaps heard him teach or Jesus personally interacted with her. And that previous encounter had a profound effect on her. She knows that Jesus, as we will see in a moment, does not see her for her sin. He's only one who doesn't see her for her sin, but he sees her for who God can make her. She knows that Jesus is unlike all those other religious leaders, that he offers forgiveness to sinners, and that he sees people in a way that she has never experienced before. And so her actions here are all premeditated. Once she heard Jesus is going to be there, she knew, I got to go too. But now we we might ask, how in the world did she get into this private house? You see, in this context, when someone would host a banquet in honor of someone like this, the doors would be flung open so that people could come off the street, stand along the walls, and just observe and perhaps glean from the discussion or the teaching that might occur. And the woman knows this. And she comes in the house, and if she had simply stood there, quietly against the wall, there wouldn't be a problem. Instead, what she does after entering breaks Every social code and her actions speak to her courage. 
She's going to get to Jesus, isn't she? Neither decorum, nor tradition, nor what anyone thinks of her will stand in her way of getting to the Lord. And every move she makes is described by Luke in great detail, of which there are eight. Did you see it? She learned where Jesus was. She brought a jar of perfume. She stood behind his feet. She wept. She washed his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and she anointed them with perfume. All of this is scandal. She's breaking with all social norms just so she can honor Jesus. I mean, even a woman letting her hair down in public was considered grounds for divorce in this context. Not to mention the walking up to a dinner guest and touching him and then kissing his feet. He just didn't do stuff like that. But this woman risked it all, didn't she? To honor Jesus. She risked it all. She was going to honor the Lord no matter what. Nothing could stand in her way. And I wonder, is that true of you too? I wonder, do you allow things to keep you from getting to Jesus? Or to get more of Him? This woman was willing to risk everything to get to Jesus' feet. Are you? you know, as a society, we will spend time and money and energy on what we think is important. We can agree on this, yes? We sacrifice in order to get what we think we need or what we think our family needs for their success or even just for their amusement. We're willing to set aside things. We are willing to schedule and plan in order to perhaps get our kids to have a better opportunity, a good college, or, or because we believe we desire a better life, or we'll even expand great energy and money on hobbies and leisures because, well, we deserve to rest from time to time, don't we? The point is, we know we will sacrifice if we believe the cost is worth the return. You agree on this? But what about when it comes to getting more of Jesus or service to Him? Like, if I were to tell you in one year, you get a million dollars. You receive a million dollars, but getting it would cost you one hour a day every day until then, as well as three additional hours on one day a week, which could cut into your plans for leisure and hobbies and travel and kids' activities. Do you think you would do it? Do you? Of course. You get a million dollars, but you have to give up a few things to do it. Doesn't that seem worth it? And yet, something greater than a million dollars is offered to us in the person of Jesus, but to get more of Him, are we willing to give up an hour of doom scrolling through Facebook and Instagram every day? Or turn off the cable news or Netflix and spend less time with our silly hobbies and frequent leisure and aspirations for our children's worldly success to encounter Him in His Word with His people? Now, no one is saying any of that is inherently bad, but they become proof of our misplaced priorities when we have time for them, but little time to spend at Jesus' feet. 
What are we to say at the end of our lives when we made ample time for things that will not matter in a thousand years? Do we think when we stand before Jesus, we will wish we gave ourselves away more to things that have no transcendent value? As C.S. Lewis said, we're far too easily pleased. The problem isn't that we don't want to be filled. It's that we spend all of our time on this or that that only fills us so much and say we're living the good life. Says Lewis, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. What can fill you more than getting more and more of Jesus? And what are we unwilling to part with that is stopping us from seeing him more? I'm unwilling to part with this. Maybe those are our idols. Are we willing to reevaluate our lives and priorities in order to spend more time at Jesus' feet? Am I, is this an unreasonable request? <laughs> to spend more time at Jesus' feet? Are we willing to pay the little cost as Americans to be more with him? What could it cost us really? What did it cost him to get to you? This woman was willing to put everything on the line to get to Jesus, and she found in him more than she ever bargained for. So moved by him and his grace, she weeps to the point that she had to use her hair to wipe off her tears. Now, friend, this is not mere crying. She washes Jesus' feet like the Pharisee should have done with a water basin as mentioned in verse 44. In fact, you know, the term used to describe her weeping is the same one used to describe rain showers. You have experienced, as I have, the difference between a light sprinkle of rain and when the bottom falls out in a torrential downpour, right? She isn't shedding a few tears. The bottom has fallen out as she considers the joy and honor of being forgiven and seen and loved by Jesus. Now, I, I do think there have been times when modern Christians have played too much into emotions, connecting mere feelings to spiritual experiences as if they are synonymous with one another, right? You, you, you know as well as I do that emotions are poor guides, and just because we feel something doesn't mean it's good or right or from the Holy Spirit. But something must be said that to feel, to not feel any sort of stirring of our hearts and tear ducts when we consider who Jesus is and what he's done for rebels like us is a sign that something is not quite connecting in our hearts and minds. Shouldn't we be moved by so great a Savior? Don't you think? Does it see how Baptist we are? We don't even want to say yes. Should we ever move past the astonishment and this reality that he would welcome sinners like you and me into his kingdom via his atoning death? Should we ever move past being astonished by that? This woman is moved and weeps tears of joy at the person of Jesus, but not everyone is moved by joy in this room, are they? Some are moved to indignation. We're told that Simon said to himself, you see it? If this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon comes to some conclusions about Jesus. He concludes that Jesus must not be a prophet because either he does not know this woman is a sinner or he does know and still allows her to touch him. So either Jesus is unaware of this woman's reputation or Jesus knows the woman's reputation and allows her to touch him because he doesn't care about ceremonial cleanness. In other words, in Simon's estimation, a real prophet would have stopped her. What really bothers Simon is Jesus' acceptance of her. The Pharisee, as John Fulmer put it, they believed in holiness by separation, but Jesus believed in holiness by association. The Pharisees and Jesus have very, two very different views of people, don't they? Klein Snodgrass put it this way, one of the most certain facts about Jesus is that he associated with the wrong people. People others thought caused defilement, but Jesus did not fear becoming unclean by contact with the unholy. He thought holiness was stronger and more contagious than defilement, and he accepted the woman's actions as righteous and loving. Now, do you see, look at verse 40, you see the irony in this. While Simon is questioning Jesus' status as a prophet, Jesus is reading his mind. Do you see the irony there? In fact, Jesus' prophetic discernment is doubly evidenced here since he both knows the identity of the woman and what the Pharisee Simon is thinking. So says Jesus to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon, still being respectful, says, say it, teacher. Leading to Jesus telling this short parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, ask Jesus, which one of them will love him more? Simon, begrudgingly, probably through clenched teeth, admits the one, I suppose, <laughs> for whom he canceled the larger debt. The parable is pretty straightforward, right? It's probably one of the most straightforward parables you ever come across. One person owes about two months' wages, and the other owes about two years' wages. So, Let's say, for example, that the average income of an American worker was $50,000 a year. Okay? It would be as if one person was forgiven a debt of about $8,000 and the other was forgiven $100,000. Okay? Both of those are a good amount of cheese. I think we could all agree. But clearly, the one who owed $100,000 would be more grateful to the offer of debt forgiven. And this act of remittance of debt from the parable should be seen as extraordinary. I mean, when was the last time the bank you owe your sweet car for calls you and says, oh, we just forgive it all? Does that happen to you? When was the last time you were told your, by your mortgage company that they wiped out your mortgage completely? This is unmerited forgiveness on the part of the moneylender. And Jesus believes that it calls for a response. Jesus, in effect, asks, asks, can one be forgiven lavishly and not respond with joy and gratitude? Shown through deeds. Is that possible? And is, if it's possible, would it make sense? And we can easily identify each player in the parable, right? The money lender is who? God. The debt is sin. The two debtors are the woman and Simon. Now, do you see what Simon's problem is? Now, we must not press the parable too far, for it isn't that somehow Simon is less of a sinner than the woman. It's that Simon doesn't see himself as a debtor at all. 
Here's a key that we could easily miss in the parable. Look again at verse 42. What does it say? It says that neither of them can pay. Do you see that? It isn't that one can pay and one cannot. The fact is, they both owe a debt that neither of them can pay. And it is the moneylender who decided of his own volition and kindness to just absorb the cost. Right? Isn't that the debt just went... It's that the moneylender absorbed all of it. He pays it himself. But Simon doesn't see himself as a debtor. Simon is focusing on the fact that he is less of a sinner than this woman, and he's missing the fact that he is, in fact, a sinner in need of forgiveness because he can't pay either. Simon has been so focused on his perception of Jesus and evaluating his credentials as a prophet, as well as being outraged by this decorum-breaking woman, that he has missed the fact that he has been a bad host. And the biggest problem of all, he has missed that he too is a sinner in desperate need of forgiving grace from God. Jesus affirms Simon has answered correctly, and he points to the woman. He says, do you see this woman? Is that an absurd question? Of course he saw her. She ruined his party, right? He's scandalized by her actions. And even her as a person, of course he sees her. But Jesus isn't asking if he just sees her, he's wondering, is, is Simon truly sees her? Do you see the difference? Simon doesn't see her. Simon sees her reputation, not her. He sees her sin, not her as an image bearer of God in need of forgiveness, like he needs forgiveness. He sees her for her faults and her past and her uncleanness and her deeds that made his dinner awkward. Simon sees this woman for what her, reputation, what her reputation is. Jesus sees her for what God can make her. Jesus knows she's a sinner. He, he says in verse 47, her sins are many. But he forgives her, and he sees her as an image bearer of God who has truly allowed that forgiveness to sink into her bones where it overflowed to deeds done for him. Jesus then contrasts Simon's treatment of him with the woman's treatment of him. Did you notice Jesus says, but she, three times. See it? I came into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. So who treated Jesus with true hospitality? Who showed real love for Jesus? Not the host. The sinful woman treated Jesus properly, approached him humbly, and showed her love through her deeds. Jesus says, in essence, her sins are forgiven, and she has loved me abundantly because she realizes how great her sins are and is grateful. You have loved me little because you don't think you need your sins forgiven, so you are ungrateful. And there's more irony here, isn't there? The religious leader, the one who is looked up to and well thought of and well-to-do and admired and spiritual and pious, it is he who has something to learn from this woman with the bad reputation. Once again, the kingdom of Christ flips things on their head, doesn't it? It's not the pious, respected religious man who gets it. It's the woman with the bad reputation who understands profoundly.
Jesus is clearly the hero of the story, but the one we remember for her right response to Jesus is not who we might expect. It isn't the religiously pious man who has it all together that we are to imitate. It's the woman whose name we don't even know, who had a bad past, but who is seen, truly seen by the Lord and responds to his gracious offer with reckless abandon and lavish love. N.T. Wright says it beautifully. He says, Luke has shown us how Jesus in Nazareth and then in the great sermon stand, stands on its head the normal expectations of what would happen when God brought in his kingdom. It'd be a time of exuberant generosity, surprising grace, and at the same time, fierce opposition, which would meet God's judgment. Now we see in a single incident what this looks like in practice. Social convention is thrown out the window. Forgiveness and love set new standards and raise new expectations. Human beings appear not as society has constructed them, but as God sees them. So let's quickly with our our remaining time consider two big lessons or application points from this incredible scene. First, just two, easy. Remember that we are all debtors. First, remember that we are all debtors. Fallen human impulse will always be to not want to admit that it is a debtor, a sinner in need of radical forgiveness from outside itself. Everyone thinks they're pretty good. Isn't that true? You're a pretty good person, aren't you? And you just have an occasional whoopsie-daisy, right? For the most part, you try real hard, you're nice, hold doors open for people. You're a good worker, you pay your taxes, and hey, at least you aren't as bad as the worst person you know. Aren't we all like that? (coughs) You know it's true. You have a little legalist in your heart like I do mine. I think of something I read in Joe Rigney's book on C.S. Lewis's view of the Christian life. He said, we're perfectly willing to admit that we aren't perfect, but the whole tenor of our confession testifies to our belief that if we could just explain the situation, everyone will realize that we aren't so bad as all that. Yet when it comes to sins against us, we rule all excuses and explanations out of court. Every appeal to extenuating circumstance is dismissed as so much blame shifting and avoidance of responsibility. Our oppressor will not get off that easily. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. When we sin, we have explanations. When other people sin, it's because they're indelibly wicked. Now, no one wants to think of how sinful they are. It's unpleasant to have to come to grips with the depravity of our hearts and our need for outside rescue. No one wants to admit that they are rebels and wretches and sinners brought forth in iniquity, alienated from a holy God and with no desire to be near him apart from his initiating works by him. We want to think we are good and mean well. But what is the Bible's estimation of us? Do you guys remember a few years ago, there was some attention given to a new hymnal was being published where the words of amazing grace were changed. It was changed from saved a wretch like me to saves and strengthens me or saved and set me free. And one of the ladies who advocated for this change said this, quote, I know that sometimes we all feel like a wretch about some things, but in general, it's not a term that most of us would apply to ourselves, end quote. 
They, they don't want to be called wretches. They don't want to admit to having a wretched state before God's amazing grace came and saved them. But if we aren't wretches, then what's so amazing about grace? Not much. Oh, gee, thanks for saving me, God. But I was actually doing okay on my own, but I appreciate the boost. A similar thing happened, do you remember, with the Getty song, In Christ Alone. When a group wanted to change the line, on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They changed it to, on that cross when Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They didn't want to sing about God's wrath. They didn't want to think, they didn't want to have to think about being objects of wrath outside of Christ. Well, if you don't think you're a wretch, then it makes sense that you don't think you deserve wrath. But if Jesus didn't absorb our wrath, then what exactly did he do? You see, we don't want to think of ourselves in this way. We don't want to be wrath-deserving wretches, but neither did Simon, which is why he's outside the kingdom. And again, if, if we're on, even if we're willing to admit that we're a little jacked up, we at least comfort ourselves with the blanket of, at least I'm not as bad as that guy or gal. Do you do this? We all do that junk, right? It makes us feel better, but it won't do. Because the truth we all need to get is that none of us actually fits in a lesser debtor category. This means that disdain for others and attitudes of superiority have no place with Christians. And it means we come to realize we are debtors who cannot pay our debt. And if no one ever does, we'll be lost forever. Pastor and author Steve Brown once said that he used to think, he said, I used to think there are two types of people in the world. Good people who go to church and are moral and good citizens, right? And there's the bad people who skip church and they mow their lawn on Sunday and things like this, right? But then he says he hadn't been a pastor for too long before he realized he had been right about there being two types of people. He'd just been wrong about who they were. He said the two types of people are these. There's bad people who know they're bad and bad people who don't. That's the difference between Simon and the woman. Simon thinks he needs a little help and, and little, has little need for forgiveness. Jesus' point is that the woman is much closer, yes? She's much closer to God's grace than Simon because she actually sees her need for mercy. And that's a mistake we could all make, right? What keeps people out of heaven the most is self-righteous goodness more than unrighteous badness. Because people who know they're bad and unrighteous are closer to getting the gospel than those who think they're so dope that they really don't need the gospel all that much because they're a pretty good person. Says Snodgrass, the identity of the woman is that issue. The Pharisee is sure she is a sinner. Jesus is sure she's a forgiven sinner. The Pharisee's identity is also in question. Is he as pure and right before God as he thinks? Do you remember what we saw in verse 34 last week? The Pharisees said, Jesus, you eat with tax collectors and sinners, and we don't like it. And it's true. Jesus does eat with sinners, and we see it here. He does eat with sinners. The problem is that Simon doesn't realize he is one too. 
Jesus acknowledges the woman's sin. He says there are many, but he, she is forgiven because she doesn't stop with her recognition of wrongdoing. It leads to the feet of Jesus. Why are her tears falling like a rainstorm? Because her overwhelming joy that says, I'm a sinner, yes, but Jesus is an even greater Savior. Where sin abounded, the love and forgiveness of Jesus superabounded. Where people saw a sinful woman, Jesus saw an image bearer of God in need of free forgiveness. Where Simon saw her reputation and her past, Jesus saw what God could make of her. This is the beauty of the gospel. Yes, sorrow for sin. Yes, admittance of our wretchedness. Yes, acknowledging we deserve hell and wrath, the just deserts of our rebellion. Yes, admitting we cannot save ourselves through our deeds or our supposed goodness. But then we can see yes to a beautiful, glorious, gracious, loving, wrath-absorbing Savior who loves wretches and rebels and wants to clean them up and bring them into his kingdom. As always for Luke, it is impossible to be neutral when it comes to Jesus. One is either a Pharisee and questions Jesus' authority and one's need for forgiveness, or one approaches Jesus humbly as did the sinful woman seeking with gratitude what he offers. Now I wonder, which describes you? Are you like Simon? Convinced you're pretty good. That you're not a debtor at least not as much as other people. There's others worse than you, clinging to your reputation and your stuff and your name and your deeds, focused more on the sins of other people than your own sins and desperate need of rescue. Are you like the woman, seeing your sin for what it is, seeing your separation from God because of that sin, and then seeing the offer of forgiveness of Jesus and coming to him like the old hymn says, I love it, I love it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Then you'd come to him and never cease your coming. To be sure, the woman is not the hero of the story. Jesus is. It is Jesus, not the woman's love, who is the source of her forgiveness. But because she had experienced Jesus' forgiveness, she responded, didn't she? And we must learn from this too. And this is the second big lesson or application for us. We must respond to received forgiveness with actions that evidence that we have, in fact, been forgiven. We must respond to receive forgiveness to evidence that forgiveness. Again, it isn't that the actions of this woman save her. It's Jesus who saves her. But her actions show that she understood what Jesus had done for her, and so she responds in love. How else can you respond to this incredible gospel? God, Snodgrass says once more, Christians today frequently think grace can be received without effect and without response. That is impossible. Is the tepidness of our commitment to God because we have a very small sense of a huge debt forgiven? If we care about what God has done for us, gratitude that responds and acts will be present. Jesus says it himself, doesn't he? The woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. Her actions testify to love's presence in gratitude. The love she experienced changed the direction of her life, and so it should for us too. Should we not? If we have grasped the forgiveness Jesus offers, respond by pouring out our perfume at Jesus' feet? 
Are we not weep with joy and shower him with kisses of loving deeds? Should we not utterly give ourselves over to his service? If we don't, what does Jesus say about that? He wonders if we have grasped the amount of debt that he has absorbed because those who love little act as if they've been forgiven little. They act as if their forgiveness isn't much of a big deal. So those who cast off all active obedience to Christ as legalism don't understand grace more. They understand it less. Those who truly understand grace can't help but to live a life of gratitude to the king. Not because they're trying to earn something, but because they truly understand the enormity of the debt forgiven, don't you see? Spurgeon said in his sermon on this text, I may truly say of her, she hath done what she could. All that her affection promote, prompted, her devotion performed. For she had the faith which works by love. And if you, dear friends, have a faith that never works for Christ, I beg you to rid of it at once, for it will turn out to be a bastard faith. The faith that never kisses his feet is a faith that he will tread under his feet. The faith that never anoints him is a faith that will have no fragrance in his esteem, and he will not accept it. We are not saved by works and faith combined, much less by works alone. But nevertheless, the faith which saves is not a barren faith. It produces the good fruit of love and service for Christ. Sustained gratitude is the only thing that makes sense in light of the surpassing grace of God offered to us that we don't deserve. Cancellation of debt like God has done for us through Christ is pure grace and is a grace that is transformational. It creates love and relationship that we couldn't have had with him if not for his initiative and his debt-absorbing cross. It requires, even demands a response. Is grace that does not bring forth a response truly grace received? Do you realize that the idea that we moderns have of grace that sees it as something received and does not require response is new? The ancients absolutely did not see grace as a gift received with no response. They believe that if person A had voluntarily rescued or aided person B, then person B had a true and lasting obligation to person A. One cannot simply ignore significant good done on one's behalf of another without loyalty in response. Let's illustrate it like this, and I'll borrow this from J.D. Greer. He says, realizing the love of God for us produces love for God in us. Imagine you arrived home one afternoon to a friend waiting on the porch. As you unlock the door to go inside, he says, oh, while you were out, a creditor came by demanding that you pay your debt. So I paid it for you. How would you react to that person? If your friend had paid some undue postage on a letter, you might slap him on the back and say, thanks, buddy. But if the IRS had shown up claiming you owed $900,000 in back taxes and they were there to take you to jail, but your friend paid that debt off, you would probably fall on your face and say, command me, my Lord. Extravagant generosity compels extravagant response. Then says Greer, when we realize how great a debt we owe to God, we become willing servants, eager to be poured out for God and his kingdom. If we do not feel that way, we might never have truly understood the gospel. Grace truly received is grace shown through a life lived for something greater than our small worlds and petty desires. Grasping the enormity of debt and cord leads to submission to Jesus and humility 
and realignment of priorities. It means risking and changing and growing and beholding, breaking alabaster jars, shedding tears of sorrow mingled with joy, and a new posture of life that lives for a greater kingdom. The woman teaches us, in some sense, what discipleship looks like. Because discipleship is not some rote learning. It's a way of life. It's responding with gratitude. It's never moving beyond the amazement that me, even me, can be saved by this God. And throwing off social norms and lines of division and seeing people the way God sees them and showing gratitude to God regardless of what it might cost. That's discipleship. And that's really the only thing that makes sense in light of the beauty of Christ. The people at the table in verse 49 ask of Jesus, who is this? Who even forgives sins? The answer is this is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the only one who can forgive sins and what it took to forgive yours was his broken body and spilled blood. Because he sees you and he, he really sees you. And he sees your plight. And he sees your brokenness. And he said, you're worth it. Tell me you could grab a hold of that truth and it not move you to love and action. Tell me you could see what Christ has done for you and not run to his feet and say, I live for you and you alone, my beautiful, glorious king. 